today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. The Premiers of Canada wrapping up their meetings uh, at St. Andrews in New Brunswick, a deal that would allow the increase of flow of beer and alcohol across provincial borders. Is that what we get out of this? Let's bring in Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thanks for taking the time as always. We appreciate it. My pleasure, Scott. Is there more to this than just beer? Um, I think it's important, even though it's trivial, and that sounds very contradictory, because it tells me that the premiers are sensitive to public opinion across Canada. They're aware that large numbers of Canadians are becoming more informed about all of the nefarious tricks used by every premier, liberal or conservative or NDP. This is nothing about partisanship. And how they use all kinds of gimmicks to restrict the goods from and, and services from other provinces. And so I think they're feeling the heat. And so they did this to, to, to demonstrate to the public that they're listening. And why I said I'm, I'm optimistic that this could be, uh, lead to bigger things is I'm hopeful that this will set a precedent. And they'll realize that it's not such a harmful thing, it isn't harmful at all, actually, to open up provincial markets to, other, to products from other provinces across Canada. And if that's the case, then maybe this is a sign of things to come. And if that's the case, this is a very good news story. How does NAFTA play into this? Because it seems ironic that all the provinces are standing together and in, in backing the, the Prime Minister, which they should, speaking with a common voice and such, yes. against the protectionism of Donald Trump, yet we have yes. it all within our borders. This has been my frustration, you know, uh, for a long time, even before uh, the uh, NAFTA ran into the very serious problems it's run into. Uh, but it's especially acute now. We're saying we've got to diversify our trade. We've created a new minister for trade diversification, and it's under our nose. On It's actually on our nose. Around $30 billion of additional uh, economic growth could be generated, according to the econometric studies I've seen, if we did a full, full Monty agreement on internal trade, no barriers inside Canada. It's often been said by real businessmen on the ground who know what they're talking about. It's much easier to export to the United States than it is to export from British Columbia to Ontario, for example. And I think that that's shameful. And you think of the, the lost opportunities, the lost tax revenues, the lost employment that would be otherwise uh, achieved through that extra growth. And it's just, and, and, and now we're saying we should go 10,000 kilometers away to Europe or to China when we could be doing free trade under our very nose in our own country and producing some significant results as a consequence. Is it everyone's knowledge and uh, just the fact that NAFTA is on the table right now that is bringing this uh, to the forefront? Because again, as you've said, this has been happening for years. Absolutely. Uh, Literally since Confederation. uh, But it's become worse in the last probably 20, 30 years um, as the the techniques and the instruments available to provincial premiers and provincial ministers that become, shall we say, more sophisticated and more nuanced. And that's allowed them to do more games. And uh, so as you can see, I'm very cynical about our provincial premiers across Canada, whether liberal or conservative 
or NDP because they're all guilty. What's they're, the they're reason? Complicit. What's the reasoning for taking this stance? I mean, don't the same arguments apply as when dealing with the United States or any other country? Well, they do. They do. This is what's so frustrating. You know, at least you could say I don't agree with the tariff war with the U.S., but I understand the logic of the tariff war. But you know, here we are. I'm putting up barriers to trade with the states, but there's no justification. Ontario putting barriers in front of BC wine coming into Ontario. And and I'm not picking on Ontario. BC mm-hmm. is just as bad and just as complicit and so is Alberta and so is New Brunswick as we saw with the beer case. All of them do it. And and they do it to allegedly protect their own consumers, but it doesn't hurt their own benefit their own consumers. They're doing it typically to benefit some producers that means companies who are donating generously to the party in power yeah. in that province to make sure that they have a more protected market so they can make more money. Uh, this premier's meeting more constructive then than those in the past, uh, more I, symbolic? I think I, I, I'm not being Pollyanna here saying, oh, happy days are finally here. In a weird way, in a weird way, Scott, Trump is doing us a favor in a weird, roundabout, upside-down, backward way. He's making us confront some of our own stupid behavior. His stupid behavior is making us confront our own stupid behavior. (laughs) And that, in a weird way, is a good thing. And if if the premiers are starting to demonstrate a recognition, which I think they are, then we may get progress yet on this file. Yes, the AIT of a couple of years ago or three years ago or whatever it was, was an improvement over the 1995 Agreement on Internal Trade, AIT. But they're both pathetically inadequate. They're pathetically inadequate. Even today, we need to have a full free trade agreement inside Canada, similar to NAFTA, but for Canada. Mm. I mean, so B.C. cannot put barriers up against Ontario products and vice versa. Uh, are the premiers more united now than in the past, or in this divisive extremist world, are we more apart? I think we're more united because we see uh, Trump as an existential threat uh, to our, econo- our economy, our economic existence. And, and I think that, you know, if it was a country from 10,000 kilometers away and we did like 2% of our GDP or 1% of our GDP, we could shrug our shoulders you know, if it was a far-off country that was a dictatorship, and there's many around the world that fall into that category, we could shrug our shoulders and say, oh, well, you know, that's a developing country, you know, and they're corrupt, and they've got a, you know, an authoritarian dictator like Putin that goes and kills opposition members, has opposition members executed, that sort of thing. We could rationalize it. It doesn't really affect us. They're far away. We don't do very much business with them. But when our next-door neighbor, uh, you know, which is the largest economy in the world, and a fellow democracy does this to us, then this, this is truly wake-up call time. This is time to, you know, that old cliche, time to wake up and smell the coffee. And because the, the, our, our relationship is changing, and our relationship with what is to Canada the single most economy on the planet Earth. So this isn't some abstract little tiny tin pot country halfway around the world. This is our next-door neighbor. And I think that they're, it's starting to hit home. And this Premier's conference seems to be, uh, they're more united on because of that. And we're going to maybe uh, take uh, steps to mitigate 
the damage of Donald Trump. What are your thoughts on uh, former Prime Minister Stephen Harper weighing in on all of this? And I guess a recording yes. surfaced last night of uh, a, a luncheon or something that he spoke at, yes. in which he basically said uh, Trudeau stalling on uh, NAFTA negotiations because he knows in this climate uh, he he get lot he gets lots of support as people love the fact that he's standing up to Trump. His his polling numbers yep. are up. Your thoughts on all of that? I read that very very closely as. I'm sure you appreciate. I mean, I have been very critical talking to you and to other uh, uh, media on our, our, our negotiations at NAFTA. Uh, I've been very critical of the government uh, because I've argued that they're too willing to. I, I didn't attribute it to politics uh, so much as I called it machoism. That is to say, they want to, you know, go mano a mano, and I'm just as big as you are, and I'm as tough as you are. And so, uh, but I was very critical, saying that this was a form of incompetence. What Trudeau is doing, excuse me, uh, what Harper is doing is accusing Trudeau of uh, playing uh, games for political advantage. Um, I've already been saying that for months on end, that that's what Trump is doing. He's doing this to curry favor with his base in the off-year elections this fall in, in 2016 in the United States the off-year elections for the House of Representatives and the Senate. Uh, so, and, and there's many others who said that. I'm not trying to claim originality there. Um, so what, Har- what Harper's doing is saying it's not just Trump doing it, it's Trudeau doing it. And I found that a very intriguing theory or hypothesis or whatever we want to call it. I was attributing uh, the fact that we aren't negotiating as well as we should to the fact that they were inexperienced, that the Trudeau uh, government is, is inexperienced, and they're young. And when you're younger, you tend to be much more macho-oriented. You know, I'm going to stand up to that other guy, and I'm going to get into a fight with him. And when you get older, like me, you think that that's not so important. It's you know, it's much more important that you get the deal. So, but so what Harper's doing is giving a slightly different, or very clearly different explanation why we don't have a deal, but we're both saying something similar. I'm saying it's because of their inexperience and their youth and their incompetence. He's saying because they're playing partisan games. Both suggest, both interpretations suggest that we could have a deal if we were behaving in a different way or acting in a different way. And I, so therefore you can see I'm somewhat sympathetic to what uh, Harper said. Whether or not he's actually doing it for that reason, um, hard to say, but I do believe we could have a deal if the Canadian government was more willing to put some water in their wine and compromise in their dealings with the Trump administration. Harper weighing in with these points, does that, does that take away from that unity that we were just talking about? Well, it's certainly going to, a uh, good point, very good uh, question, very good point. I think it's going to uh, legitimize dissent, legitimize disagreement on how we're proceeding, um, I, I'm not trying to turn this back to me, but I've been very, very critical, and I've been a voice in the wilderness because there's very, very few people who have been critical in Canada uh, in the, who have, do, do media interviews. Very few have been critical of the government of Canada in terms of the negotiation. I, I do think we botched the file, and I've said so repeatedly. So I think what Harper, because he is the former prime minister of a G7 country, and so I think he is going to legitimize. Some people will attack Harper for what he said. Others are going to say, hey, good point. So he's allowed uh, dissent and criticism to come to come onto the to the to, to the table uh, in the media discussions, and I think that's a good thing because, as I said, I don't think we've handled it well. So, whatever the motive is, whatever the reason is, it, we need to have a conversation about how we're going to get out of this mess, 
out of this rabbit hole that we're in, where we're basically getting into a trade war. And so if if Harper has uh, his con- his comments have pushed the yardsticks a little bit to encourage some some vigorous debate uh, in Canada, I think that's a good thing. Lots of chatter of late around the auto sector in regard to NAFTA. I can't let you go without asking you your opinion of this. Will this materialize? Where are we with this discussion? Because there just well, seems to be a lot exactly, of posturing at this point. Thank you for asking that, Scott, because this to me is my greatest fear. Let me be, speak really bluntly. I mean, I'm a tenured professor in the ivory tower, to use that proverbial phrase, even though I worked in banking for 10 years. And, and I'm going to have a job no matter what happens to NAFTA. That's just a reality for tenured professors. Um, uh, at the same time, I don't want damage to occur to fellow Canadians in southern Ontario in the auto sector just because it's not going to blow back onto me personally. Uh, this worries me a great deal, as it worries many, many Canadians. If he imposes, he, Trump, imposes tariffs on us, it's sure it's going to hurt the American side, and the American auto industry has said so in the last 24 hours. But anyone who thinks it's going to hurt the Americans more than us is dreaming in Technicolor. It's going to whack us big time, and it's going to fall disproportionately on the people of southern Ontario in the auto manufacturing sector and the steel sector, because the largest consumer of steel is automotive industry. Do I want that, or does any Canadian think that that's a good thing? No. So, we, again, that drives me back. We've got to get back to the negotiating table and start putting some water in our wine, maybe compromising on supply management, because increasingly it seems that that is the sticking point with Trump, because we cannot put the auto industry and the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of jobs in that industry and the derivative industries like steel, we can't put them at risk just to, to save... 9,000 dairy farmers in the, in, the supply, in the dairy farm industry. So we've got to get back to the negotiating table. I think that that will be catastrophic. That will be Armageddon. Why, the chatter of, why, the ch- why all the chatter about this issue, about this uh, industry this week? Uh, because we're are, vulnerable. <laughs> are, are, are we closer to any sort of decision? Or are, are we closer to uh, uh, knowing either way, I guess? I think Trump is, uh, uh, I've said this before, he's a canny like a fox. I also think he's ruthless, and I don't mean that in a favorable sense of the word or a, a complimentary sense of the word. He understands our vulnerabilities. He is uh, famous for exploiting people's vulnerabilities, whether it was Jed Bush or Marco Rubio in the, in the leadership. He is, he is famous for viciously exploiting people's weaknesses and he, or vulnerabilities. He knows that we are really, really vulnerable because the auto industry is highly concentrated in southern Ontario, which is Canada's most populated and wealthiest province, largest GDP province. And so I think that he's doing this. He's putting the classic squeeze on Trudeau and the government of Canada to try and force them to compromise and come back to the negotiating table. And so that's why I think he's doing it right now in advance of the off-year elections. The off-year elections are coming up. They're going to be campaigning this summer, and especially so in the fall. And Trump is looking for something that he can brag about on the campaign trail. And for us to say, no way are we going to give him any cause to celebrate, I think is very short-sighted. We should be saying instead, how can we make a deal that's in his interest and Canada's self-interest? And if that means, as I said, compromise a little bit on the on the uh, on the dairy industry to save the entire economy, including the auto industry, well, 
so be it. I, I have no problem with that. And I'm, I'm, I'm just hoping that the Canadian government will come around and start to compromise on that issue because the idea that compromising on the dairy industry that employs 9,000 uh, farmers is going to devastate Canada is absolute nonsense. It's just not true. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, as always, thank you for the time. Have a great weekend. Same to you, Scott. Thanks very much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. In a recording at a private function, former Prime Minister Stephen Harper made remarks, uh, allegations against the NAFTA deal and the Trudeau government that the government is resisting to score uh, a deal just trying to get uh, uh, partisan points, I guess, uh, in the election. A new poll has come out so showing that uh, Trudeau's numbers are up, and the reasoning for it is the position that he is taking uh, with Trump, of course, in regard to NAFTA and sticking up for Canadian interests, as, as of course, every uh, Canadian politician uh, should do. He goes on to say, the reality is, is the government of Canada believes today that it is doing very well, and the fight with Trump is good for it politically. It is winning. So if it can take a fight and can, if it can take that fight and continue it, and more importantly, paint conservatives as linked to Donald Trump, this is great for them. And so right now, that is the strategy that they are on, so says Stephen Harper, uh, former prime minister of the country. To talk more about all of this, Tim Powers is with us, vice chairman. Summa Strategies has served as a national advisor, sorry, an advisor to the national party leader and federal cabinet ministers and is on the line with us now. Tim, thank you for taking the time. We appreciate this. Happy to be here, Scott. I guess if it's all request Friday, we should be for the, the story we're talking about uh, pl- uh, requesting, oh, what a night. Because I guess <laughs> if you were there and hearing all of that, so that's a new theory that's being advanced. So bring on Frankie Avalon. <laughs> uh, we're off to Venus. All right. Uh, the PM numbers are up, as I said. Uh, lots are saying, or the, the, the polling company saying it's due to this. Is, is the PM using this for political gain? I guess any more than anyone, any more than anyone else is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, Trump uh, picks fights to get uh, to, to get support, and uh, sometimes if you're the target of the, the fight, uh, depending where you are, it can be a benefit. Look, as you just said with the Ipsos poll, there's no doubt uh, that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's uh, position in Canada and fighting back against Donald Trump uh, is helpful to him. Um, I don't know if he's deliberately trying to prevent a NAFTA deal from happening. I don't know if there's the possibility to do that. But what the former prime minister said from a political perspective is, in fact, accurate. Donald Trump is a good political tool for Justin Trudeau uh, as he prepares for 2019. I don't think anybody uh, disputes that. Uh, in the end, do we just have to get used to the fact that we are going to give something up? Yeah, I, I mean, in most trade deals you do, um, but uh, it, it's we gain as well. You usually gain something out of it. I think part of the Harper thesis, if I remember this correctly, he, a number of uh, months ago, um, had suggested that maybe the, the current prime minister ought to look at doing a bilateral deal with the Americans. Um, South Korea did the bilateral deal, um, but the current prime minister had said he wanted to do it with Mexico. So I don't know if, I, again, I, I haven't heard the tape. I don't know if that, that comment was linked to all of that. Um, so we'll see how this all emerges. I mean, it, it, it seems that Trump himself 
And again, who knows, uh, Scott, what is fake and what is real? Seeing Mr. Trump has brought that into the, the realm of things. Uh, the, the American president himself doesn't seem to want to do a deal before the American midterm elections in November. So I don't know if there's even a deal to be had at the moment. That was my next point. Is all of this on hold until it's good for politics and good for the election? Yeah, I, I, oh, there's been so many interviews that Donald Trump has given in the last few days, would or would not. Uh, we're all familiar with that one. Uh, I guess he believes it would be good for him, for him uh, to hold off doing a deal until the November um, elections are done in the United States. Uh, I haven't seen any sense that that's about to change. And, of course, there's a new Mexican president as you know, and the listeners know, and part of the rationale that was out there is that a, a deal would certainly be delayed until that new president came into play. So that new president is there. Yeah, it's hard to see something getting done now, but who can predict anything, Scott? Who can predict anything right now as it relates to American politics and the Canadian dynamics? So I guess I'm a useless analyst for you this morning. <laughs> I don't know what the hell is going to happen. Uh, lots of chatter about the auto sector of late. Does this mean it's mm-hmm. heating up? Does this mean it's coming to the t- tipping point? Will this be the trump card? No pun intended. Um, maybe he cut a deal with uh, with Putin in Russia for the exportation of those great Russian uh, cars to the uh, to to Canada. So maybe that's we're bringing back. Worried, we're bringing back the Lada. The Lada. That's what it was. There's another <laughs> classic one as well that I forget at the moment. A little tiny one. It's like a Mini Cooper. But uh, the, the, that diversion aside. The president has made noise to suggest that autos could be a target, and most of the things he's made noise about before he's then done something. So uh, we would be foolish if we weren't preparing for some strike on the auto front. But I'm I'm in uh, California right now. I was actually listening to a news story last night when I was driving uh, in the car to the hotel about how Americans were concerned what would happen if uh, the president acted on the auto sector. So there's certainly news on both sides of the border about what any action might make. So people like Jerry Diaz, uh, the, the, the National Union leader for Unifor, and others are probably smartly trying to bang some drums now to say, hey, uh, it's not just Canadians that will uh, be hurt. It will be others uh, in the United States who will also suffer. Uh, do you see a timeline for this? Is there any hurry? Because at one point there was a hurry to get this done. Now it seems that there's no hurry at all. I, I mean, they, they, you need to bring this, even Trump needs to bring his chaos to a close at a certain point. Um, so I, I suspect if there is a timeline and it is connected to the U.S. midterms that are early 2018. I mean, the Canadian government, I think, would like to conclude. I can't imagine just for the state of the economy, they would want this lingering beyond uh, as we get into a federal election next October. Yeah, can we believe you're saying that already? Next October, yeah. the federal election. I think Canada will want to conclude something uh, early in, in 2018. Um, while it might be good politics to say, I need another mandate to uh, get a deal with Trump and to stand up to Donald Trump. The reality is if, you know, the, the economy starts to, to, to tank a little bit, um, that will be a major problem for the incumbent and that incumbent's Justin Trudeau. 
Getting back to the Harper issue and him speaking out, and of course this started with a, a trip he made to the White House uh, a couple of weeks back. Good or bad for negotiations? And, and where's Andrew Scheer on this, leader of the Conservatives, especially thinking, you know, Mulroney's even helping out on this? Yeah, well, and it's not just Brian Mulroney, right? Um, it's uh, Rana Ambrose is part of the negotiating uh, advisory body for the government, as is James Moore, both uh, former senior ministers, with Stephen Harper, uh, Andrew Shear himself this week said, "Let's recall Parliament so that Canada can get another trade deal passed through, that being the Trans-Pacific Partnership." So the the, the strategy Shear is taking is, "All right, you know, whatever is happening with NAFTA is happening, but we need to diversify markets. So why don't we focus on the Trans-Pacific Partnership?" Come on, Prime Minister, you talk a big game on this. Let's do that. So that's where Shear is. What Shear will. Um, want to sort of embrace but also be cautious of is being too much aligned with whatever Stephen Harper's actual position is. Stephen Harper is still well regarded by many members of the Conservative Party, um, not necessarily as well regarded by the, uh, the broader public. Andrew Scheer, if he's going to be successful against Justin Trudeau, is going to have to have a bit of separation from Stephen Harper. And Stephen Harper's been conscious of that. So when stories like this appear, you will see, I think spokespeople are out saying today that, uh, you know, he has no comment on uh, what happened in, in private meetings. He doesn't want to fan the flames here, but certainly the Liberals are going to try and fan the flames. They've just bought some gasoline there in Hamilton to pour on the fire. Huh. Um, uh, that being said, uh, is there something positive coming out of what Harper is saying? Well, I, I think it, you know, it can make people think about is there another way of doing a, a, a deal here? And that drives us back to, okay, is what Harper's saying intellectually right that Trump, who has said before he prefers bilateral arrangements, might be open to a bilateral arrangement? Does that create some pressure uh, on the current government in some sectors to say, hey, can you get a deal done here? Uh, it'll ask, it'll force discussions like the one we're having today. Is there a deal to be had? So uh, that sort of scrutiny can be a, can be a very good thing because it will test uh, the veracity of the arguments that we've heard from our Canadian leaders as to the, the challenges of getting an arrangement done right now. I can't let you go without asking you your opinion of what has happened south of the border in regard to uh, Putin and the Trump summit. And uh, it's it's odd because uh, after the summit ended and, of course, 24 hours after that period when uh, Trump eventually realized there was a firestorm back home and started changing wood to wooden and so on and so forth, uh, I actually wrote a piece saying, well, there has to be another summit because clearly there's been lots of confusion. And if there's confusion uh, between the press and Donald Trump, what could have gone on during that private meeting that nobody, uh, you know, you know no one attended other than, than the translator? So that being said, I had tongue firmly planted in cheek. Are you surprised what we're hearing now that there's Putin, too? I mean, there's the sequel coming. I'm not well. Nothing surprises me when it comes to Donald Trump. But to answer your initial question, what do you think? So I'm a Newfoundlander. That maybe be portrayed by my accent right now. I promise not to swear on radio. That's only me. Not all Newfoundlanders, of course, swear. Uh, I landed here in San Francisco last night for some uh, project I'm here doing. I do what most Canadians Newfoundlanders do: talk a little bit about local issues. I asked a question of the 
the driver, what do you think about Donald Trump? And this was shocking for a Newfoundlander. I didn't get a word in H-wise of the 20 minutes in. I got a full <laughs> diatribe, and this is California, and the driver fits more of your California motif, more Democrat. A great dissection of American politics that focused entirely on Helsinki, and I've been absorbing with great interest the American news today, and it still keeps going. Uh, all channels, uh, there does seem to be in all sectors, uh, though muted a little bit, and they should be ashamed of themselves in the Republican Party, criticism of Trump's Helsinki posturing. But uh, it, it, it's it's still a focus of discussion here. It should be a focus of discussion here. It it was disturbing. Uh, it does seem to play, if you've read The Art of the Deal or you've seen those discoveries or the bits and pieces about Trump's book, The Art of the Deal, how he sort of goes by gut. Uh, when he does negotiations, lives in the moment. Um, I think Helsinki was an example of that, but that may turn up to be his moment in burning hell as we go forward, though he seems to be forgiven, Scott, by his supporters. Is that what's happening, though, Tim? I mean, honestly, I mean, and, and whenever we ask these questions, the expert says, well, it depends who you ask. Is it the base or, or whatever? Is Is this a tipping point for the base? At what point does the base say, you know what, I think he's a communist? <laughs> It could be if Putin rolls into Washington in September or October, as they say they are, and they appear all chummy again, and and there's the chaos and the confusion. I think he's got to be careful with that. I think his, you know, his his belief in his uh, preternatural power to do a deal and forge peace forever are, is not going to be met by the skill of of Vladimir Putin and and, and Putin's genius in uh, in in running the relationship between them. Maybe that's the undoing. I don't know, but my God, Trump supporters are resilient. They they take what the man says and uh, and accept him when he errs and uh, look past the things when he lies, it seems, from what I can see. You go back to the days of the Cold War. Uh, I mean, it, it was all about communism, 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 stopping yeah. the pre- spread of communism. Why does that word not come up now? Because the bigger enemy seems to be fake news in America being attacked from within. Um, you, you know, again, back to the story last night, uh, and it's a story that's familiar to many in your listening regions, it's the divide between peoples uh, within own countries around wealth and around affordability and around housing. And I think there are so many people in America and in Canada, but to a lesser degree in Canada, who are just frustrated with their own economic circumstances, feel a, 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 a pronounced gap. Yep. And a guy like Trump can get away with a lot more things when he talks about their issues and looks like he's straight talking and moving forward. And international affairs and the concerns about Russia seem like less of a threat when your own economic circumstances at home are being threatened, uh, as you may believe them to be, by decisions that have been made by previous governments to advance somebody else over you. It's not the, the Russians invading Colorado in that great old film, uh, Red Dawn. It's, uh, it's the, the neighbor next door who might have got a hand up from, uh, from a government source and you're left behind. That, that seems to be where Trump is strong. Do opposition politicians realize that? Do the Democrats in the United States understand that? Do they understand why they lost? Do they are, are we going to see more Trump like politics or are we going to see the pendulum swing back and people understand why this happened? 
I think it, it, we saw this emerging in the 2016 U.S. election, and you, I, I remember this in Ottawa when Obama was still president, uh, Peña, uh, Peña was the president of Mexico, and Trudeau was there, and this was just after Brexit. And they were all there talking about how you know we all had to hear what people were saying in the Brexit election. We had to hear about the pain that people were feeling from trade deals and things not working for certain segments of, of the country and certain regions of the country. I don't know if the Democrats have yet found a person or a way to speak to that pain that can connect in a hopeful way. Um, less people seem to be upset about uh, Trump's peddling of fear uh, and his uh, peddling of ignorance. Uh, as they, they seem to accept that. So the Democrats have to find a way to connect with people that speaks to their hope and also seems like they're able to produce uh, a result that will benefit those who feel the pain. Uh, Putin and Trump, the sequel, will these be a secret meetings as well? And and how does that play in America that, you know, we seem to be hearing what happened through Russian media or Russian sources? Yeah, that's great, isn't it? Uh, really? Really? Uh, find that interpreter. God, that interpreter could make a fortune now yeah. if uh, she were to she were to take her story public. Um, I, I think in America and in, in the U.S. they're going to have to play it very Differently, although they weren't in Russia, they were in Finland. They were on neutral ground. Yeah, Trump so uh, is, is, is he actually going to show up at the White House? Do we really think this is going to happen? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know where they would would meet there. I, I mean, that's going to be one of the things they're Mar-a-Laga. To they're going to Mar-a-Laga for a round of golf. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, the Japanese president's been there. Others, their prime minister's been there. So maybe, maybe Mar-a-Laga and Putin will be converted to the virtues of capitalism, though I think he's well familiar with the power of money. He does quite well, I understand, with his own accumulation of wealth. Who knows where they're going to meet? Uh, but they'll, I don't think it can be in the White House, unless there's some visual of uh, Putin kowtowing to Trump, and I don't think he'll ever get that visual. Is this a perfect strategy for Trump, Tim? Everybody is up in arms about this meeting, or this past meeting, so let's have another one. Uh, yeah, I mean, he thrives on creating chaos and then driving, throwing another element into the, uh, creating another chapter out of that chaos. You know, the thing that's emerging here this morning in the American news, um, I don't know if it's hit back in Canada yet is Michael Cohen, Trump's lawyer, apparently taped one of his conversations with a Playboy model. I don't know if it was Stormy Daniels or somebody else. I haven't seen the full text of the story, and now the American cable shows are, are running with that. Um, so for Trump to push back to Putin and to push back to international affairs distracts people from that story, which he really does find uncomfortable. So is this story and all the hoopla around the Putin-Trump summit, is that like any other 24-hour news cycle? Is it gone to people? Is, is this I one resonating? Know. I don't know because he took on the U.S. Intelligence Committee, and they're going to be around long after Donald Trump. Um, they're more pervasive and pronounced in, in places around the world than Donald Trump. They have a bigger reach than Donald Trump. Donald Trump has the oxygen now. But I heard an American congressman describe Trump's tour last week as the blowtorch tour, right? Hmm. Uh, it started at the NATO summit, went to Britain, uh, and then ended up in, in Helsinki. There, there's some significant 
changing the dynamic of international relations, if not damaged international relations, as people try to figure out uh, what happens with Donald Trump. So uh, it may only be a 24-hour news cycle about Putin, um, but it's going to be a long-term uh, in, there's going to be long-term impacts on how people conduct themselves in the world with this American president and how alliances behave and act and what they prioritize, which has all sorts of uh, potential impacts for us. Is this a tipping point for Trump, Tim, because we've always viewed this man as divisive, uh, uh, trying to create confusion, always putting his competitor on their heels, a bully, a bull in a china shop. But after the Putin meeting Everyone was 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 uh, the opposite. He was very weak. He was a wet noodle. He was this uh, UK press, uh, uh, Putin's poodle. Instead of him coming across as and look, everybody's scared of Donald Trump. It, it was as if it almost switched, and he went from being this bully to now this weak man. A perfect example: he left the Queen waiting twelve minutes for the official visit, and then Trump turned around and, and made him wait an hour. I mean, is yeah. this a, is this a tipping point just because he now appears very weak and, and and a puppet to Putin as opposed to that bully? It has the potential to be for sure. It has the potential to be. Um, we'll just have to see. I think November will tell us what what happens in the elections. There, we'll also see how. Uh, other countries now decide to deal with Trump. Do they let him eat up all the oxygen? I mean, look at the G7 meeting and look at the, the NATO meetings. Trump came into both of those guns ablazing. He starts agenda setting through Twitter, what he wants to focus on. The meetings, uh, at least for from the public perspective, get hijacked. People try to respond to Trump. Do people now start to ignore that? Do governments uh, create different alliances to deal with Trump in these international settings. Um, those are the things we'll have to watch to know if he has been weakened and, and if his his style is starting to be understood by uh, his global peers. Hmm. Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies, served as advisor to a National Party leader and federal cabinet ministers. Tim, thank you for the discussion. Fascinating. Uh, we'd love to chat again. Thanks so much. Okay, and you play Oh What a Night for me, all right? I will for sure. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Canada's auto industry is mobilizing with an anti-tariff campaign following yesterday's statement by Canada's Deputy Ambassador to the United States that should auto tariffs be imposed on Canadian auto imports, Canada will implement proportional regulatory tariffs. Uh, Yesterday's public confirmation of contemplated retaliatory measures by a Canadian representative uh, in our eyes is an alarming escalation of the dispute and leaves us with no choice but to take action, said John White, president and CEO of the Canadian Automobile Dealers Association. Uh, These are very trying times and it's for up till now the auto sector has managed to stay out of it. Uh, But is this the ultimate Trump card? No pun intended. Let's bring in Michael Hatch, Chief Economist, Canadian Auto Canadian Automobile Dealers Association. He is with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott, for having me. I appreciate it as well. Why is there why does there seem to be more chatter about the auto industry of late? Has this sort of been a Trump card in the back pocket, being weighed to play? Why is this why is this coming to the surface now? Why is this heating up? Yeah, it's been heating up the past few months. I mean, I think the original threat, I guess, um, came subsequent to the G7 meetings in Quebec uh, earlier in the summer when the president 
initially started threatening the possibility of a 25% tariff on automotive imports into America, uh, which of course would be catastrophic for the American consumer primarily. It would also be catastrophic for uh, manufacturers in Canada and elsewhere in the world. Um, but we came out a couple of weeks ago with a report that presented, you know, what we thought would be a worst case scenario, which would be a U.S. imposed tariff on automotive, followed by a Canadian retaliatory strike um, at the same level, which again is worst case scenario and would cost uh, in excess of 100,000 jobs in this country and levy a tax on the consumer in Canada that approaches or exceeds $10,000. So that's really the worst case scenario. And what we saw yesterday was a further escalation when our deputy ambassador told a, com- a committee of uh, uh, congressional leaders that Canada would indeed um, retaliate in kind if the U.S. imposed any tariffs. And that's exactly what we're saying we cannot afford to do. We cannot afford to go tit for tat, dollar for dollar with America on automotive trade, which is worth $150 billion a year between our two countries. We just can't do that. That would be the worst case scenario, and it would be the nuclear option. And 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 we saw a very alarming escalation yesterday, and that's why we're responding today. Uh, what do we do? Don't retaliate. How? What course of action should we take uh, if they do impose tariffs? You're suggesting not retaliate with with uh, similar tariffs. Where do we go? You know, if it's a binary choice between uh, pulling the trigger on a gun that's pointed at our own head and not, I would prefer that we choose the latter option and not pull that trigger. Um, tariffs are, are taxes that we levy on ourselves. Um, you know, it's often uh, sort of portrayed in the language of a, the schoolyard bully. And if we don't respond in kind, then, then somehow we're weak. That rhetoric is entirely unhelpful. It's an entirely inaccurate metaphor. For one thing, when the U.S. imposes tariffs, it's not bullying us. It's bullying itself. It's punching itself in the face. So if you see a schoolyard bully punching itself in the face, does it make sense to turn around and punch yourself in the face? No, I would argue that it does not. But that's exactly what is represented by retaliatory tariffs. So the difficult thing to do politically, I understand, is to do nothing. But that's the only option if America goes ahead with these catastrophic tariffs on itself. We, we, we have the option to not do that to ourselves, and we're urging the government to take that course of action. Uh, will these tariffs, I mean, we are a drop in the bucket compared to them. Will any sort of tariff, tariffs hurt Americans as much as it does Canadians? Well, the tariffs that are going to hurt Americans the most are the tariffs that are implemented by America, mm-hmm. the ones that are currently being contemplated. Uh, and that's what a lot of people, the president included, or primarily the president, don't understand, is that uh, implementing a tariff, particularly a tariff of that level, 20 or 25 percent on trade worth hundreds of billions of dollars, represents effectively a massive tax hike on the American consumer. Um, so so that will do more damage than anything we could then turn around and do to the Americans, uh, you know, given the fact that the political pressure will be intense. And we, we understand and acknowledge that the political pressure will be intense to respond and to, to be seen as doing something, even though in this case doing something is akin to punching yourself in the face. I mean, a a, a much better metaphor that I've heard, better than the schoolyard bully rhetoric, is that tariffs in a trade war are are the same as blowing up your own cities in the hopes that the smoke will burn the eyes of your enemies. Hmm. Hmm. You you might might burn the eyes of your enemies, but you're left with with, uh, smoking wreckage where your cities used to be. So, Michael, you're suggesting if they impose tariffs, just don't react. 
that's what we're saying. We're saying that, that sometimes being in government and leadership requires difficult decisions, and it will be a very difficult position, an impossible position, and we acknowledge that. And we've supported the government to this uh, point uh, um, on their handling of this file, which is the most challenging file that they've got. It's the most difficult and the most important uh, job of the federal government right now is to, is to handle relations with America and to minimize, frankly, the damage that America can do to us. Uh, and, and we support everything that they've done up until this point, even on the steel and aluminum side. When we did uh, take retaliatory action on, on, on that side of things, you know, that was a targeted list that was uh, put together carefully by the government with a view to minimizing the impact on the consumer. Um, and, and, you know, we largely supported that. But right now we're dealing with a much larger, but orders of magnitude larger in terms of the threat and in terms of the importance of the industry and the size of the industry and the impact on the consumer. Um, so, you know, our message, again, is to, in all things that the government does, keep in mind primarily the consumer and what impact it will have on the consumer. And any retaliatory tariffs that are implemented by Canada ultimately will act as a massive tax hike on the consumer, which we just can't afford. You said that these tariffs will, will hurt America more than Canada, the tariffs that they're putting on us. Will Americans feel that pain, or, or is Canada so small they, they don't care? You know, if Canada's upset, who cares? Will they feel? Will Will Americans feel this? They will feel the pain. I mean, Canada is well. For one thing, the, the threat, as I understand it, is not only to impose tariffs on Canada on imports from Canada, but elsewhere in the world as well. But even if they were just Canada, uh, Americans would certainly feel that. I mean, we make more than two million vehicles a year in Canada on the manufacturing side. Of course, we represent the retail side, but on the manufacturing side, we make two point two, point three million cars a year. Eighty to ninety percent of which are destined for America. So almost 2 million vehicles, finished vehicles a year, are made in Canada and end up in the U.S. market. That is a huge chunk of the U.S. market. And if you're putting a 25% tax on that as the U.S. government, consumers are going to start feeling that immediately. In, in, in dealerships across America, there's you know between 60 and 90 days of inventory. So as soon as a tariff is implemented, that inventory gets eaten up in a couple of months, and it's going to start biting very, very soon. So absolutely, the U.S. consumer will feel it. They will feel it almost immediately, and they will feel it very severely. Who does support these tariffs? I mean, you guys are on a campaign right now to explain how painful this will be to both sides. Who's standing behind Trump on this? That's a very good question. Uh, as far as I can tell, very few people. Mm. Um, you know, he, he's got the entirety of the congressional leadership in both parties, and uh, even more so in his own party on the Republican side, urging him not to do this. The Republican Party has historically been pro-trade, pro-NAFTA, uh, pro-consumer. And uh, as far as I can tell, there still are voices in that party that, that, uh, that are voicing those views. 35 out of 50 states in America count Canada as their number one trading partner. So there are state leaders, there are governors in America, dozens of them, urging the U.S. administration not to pull this trigger. Um, so to answer your question, who's behind him, I, I'm I'm not sure. I, it's hard to see anybody who's, um, you know, some who's credible, uh, and who is credibly arguing that the the Americans have to implement these tariffs on national security grounds, uh, which is what they're trying to use to justify it. Which again is uh, is it, it would be laughable if it wasn't so catastrophic. You guys are selling too many tanks. That's what it is. Yeah, that must be it. Uh, do we have any room for leverage? Because it appears not. 
You know, we do have room for leverage just by virtue of the fact that, and again, our government, to its credit, has, has been pulling these levers ever since it took over uh, power a couple of years ago. We have leverage because there are voices in America that share our concerns and that are delivering the same message, that this tariff, as contemplated, represents a massive tax hike on the U.S. consumer. So we have leverage, and we're, and we're pulling those levers. We have allies in Congress. We have allies in both parties on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., who are delivering this message. Um, so we do have leverage on the political side. And, and economically, we have leverage as well, because, again, the, the reality is that if, if the president pulls this trigger on, on himself and on uh, the American consumer, the impact will be enormous and it will be almost immediate. And people, once they start seeing the impact on their wallets and bottom lines, uh, will start to realize, wait a second, um, you know, maybe this wasn't the, the best thing to do. Is it naive to think that we won't have to give up something, and it, it, should we be sacrificing something else to keep the auto industry intact? Yeah, you know, I mean, NAFTA, I, I guess that question is in the context of the ongoing NAFTA negotiations, which, again, have been ongoing for, for a while. NAFTA is almost 30 years old, and there are certainly ways that it can be updated and modernized to, uh, you know, account for the fact that so much has changed in the past 25, 30 years in terms of trade, in terms of the economy and technology, et cetera. Um, you know, there's plenty of things that can be updated. Um, and, and I don't think it, it has to be framed in the language of, you know, do we have to offer a concession or give something up? Uh, you know, trade is mutually beneficial. That's, that's why we do it. That's why we have trade agreements, because trade is meant to, to benefit both sides. So I think everybody has to continue what they're doing on both sides, and that is and that is talking and, and negotiating and coming to what we hope to be a uh, you know mutually uh, beneficial and satisfactory conclusion on NAFTA that uh, you know takes into account the realities of of the modern world. But I don't think we have to make you know massive concessions or or even things that are changed in in the agreement aren't necessarily concessions. Uh, things that are often portrayed as concessions in the media are are, are not that. They are things that are pro pro-consumer, which is ultimately what all these negotiations should be about. It should be about the consumer. Uh, the, the Prime Minister's numbers, his poll numbers, popularity numbers are up five points. So says Ipsos. They credit this to him standing up to Donald Trump and, and all the other political leaders in the country, no matter what their political stripe, uh, standing behind Trudeau on this. Is this more about politics than getting a deal done? And here's another example. Uh, a caller says uh, disagrees with you and thinks Canada should absolutely be taking action with tariffs and standing up to the U.S. Again, we've got into that, you know, uh, kicking sand in the face of the other person, uh, you know, despite losing on a on a deal here. Uh, is this politics working in the prime minister's favor? You know, I, I, I can't comment on, on, on the politics of it. Uh, I mean, we, we are in touch with the government and we've met with the prime minister and his team and the foreign minister and her team. Uh, repeatedly and, and frequently in the in the past several months, um, and you know I can say that they are in good faith pursuing the best interests of of Canada and the Canadian economy on this file as as they have to, because uh, again this is the most important economic um, issue facing our country right now, and for the federal government it, it, it is the most important issue that they are facing. Um, regardless of the fact that they're going to be facing re-election in a year, and there's obviously political forces at play, uh, you know, about which I'm not qualified to comment. Um, but you know, the notion that somehow they're 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 ragging the puck uh, for, for the for the political political uh, upside, I, I don't buy that. Um, you know, they are working in, in in good faith. I would argue, 
Um, and the fact that, you know, this issue, apart from all other issues uh, that divide people in this country and divide political parties, this issue has united, you know, people as, as far apart as, as Jason Kenney in Alberta and the Prime Minister and, uh, you know, politicians on all sides of the spectrum are are in lockstep on this issue. Um, and the government is, 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 I would argue, working with that in mind and not for any kind of short-term political bump. I think ultimately the biggest political bump will come if they are able to, you know, renegotiate and, and de-escalate this threat that we're now facing. Uh, what would you say to this caller then that says, uh, absolutely, we should be taking action with tariffs and standing up to the United States. Don't let us, don't let them kick us around. Yeah. So, I mean, that is, again, a manifestation of this rhetoric that has somehow taken hold that this is like a schoolyard tussle. But it's not. Again, tariffs are taxes that we levy on ourselves. And I would say to that person that's writing in, um, that's all well and good, that position. It's a popular position that exists out there, and I understand it. But what happens the next time uh, that person is shopping for a new vehicle and, and, and the price tag is $7,500 more than it would have been? Perhaps they wouldn't be so so uh, ready to, quote, get into a tussle uh, when it starts to hit their bottom line, as it inevitably will. Is free trade too big to turn back now? I mean, we started this, uh, you know, NAFTA 25 years ago. Has our economy just advanced too much to put this genie back in the bottle? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's certainly on the automotive side, which is, you know, the sector that I represent. Um, you know, since NAFTA, and largely as a result of NAFTA, automotive manufacturing, and again, we represent the retail side, but obviously the manufacturers are, are our partners in the industry. The, the manufacturing industry in North America has become one of the most integrated and one of the most competitive in all of the world, and that's largely as a result of NAFTA and, and, and the continentally integrated industry that has uh, been created as, as a result of, uh, of NAFTA. You know, it's often said that a vehicle and its various component parts across the, the border six, seven, eight times over the course of, of, of its manufacturing cycle, and, and that's true. And that's only possible because we have free trade between Canada and, uh, and the U.S. And, and Mexico within the NAFTA framework. So, you know, the notion that somehow that can all be reversed, I think, is a stretch, but it's certainly under threat, and we can't take that threat lightly. Um, we, have, we have to take the threat seriously, and I think that we are. Uh, we can't take for granted the fact that it's going to continue as it has for the past 25 years forever. Sometimes difficult discussions have, have to take place, and that's what's happening now. When this all first started, Michael, it seemed like there was a rush to get a decision made. There was a rush to get the negotiations going. Now it seems that nobody cares. It's, well, I shouldn't say that. It, it, now it seems as if those powers, the political powers, don't seem to be in, in, in any rush. How do you explain that? You know, that's a, that's a good question, um, and it probably comes down to the relative, you know, political realities of each of the three countries. Uh, you know, in, initially, or not initially, but I would say in 2017, there was a bit of a rush to get it done before the Mexican presidential election, which took place a couple of months ago. Right. But obviously that deadline came and went. Right now we're faced with uh, a recently passed deadline whereby, you know, we needed to get it done earlier this summer so that the current U.S. Congress could ratify it before the midterms. Now that deadline has passed. So, you know, we're, we're, it's been a little bit of hurry up and wait. Uh, right now, I, I, I gather that we're well past the point after which we can't really uh, realistically get to a, an agreement that the current U.S. Congress is going to be able to deal with it in a, in a, in a robust manner before the midterms hit in November. So now that all of a sudden boots it into 2019 
when the new Congress sits early next year. So really? Can you get anything done now, considering we are so close <laughs> to the midterms? I mean, that was a reason for hurrying it up, but now is is that the reason to delay yeah, it? Yeah. No mean, sense so doing I, it I, now. I, I don't think so. I, I, I don't think that it's, it's even given that the, the uh, you know, the timelines that are required in Congress in Washington uh, and, and the amount of time that Congress would have to deal with it, they, they just don't have enough time left on the clock before the midterm. So that, that deadline passed quite a while ago, earlier in the spring, uh, sort of late spring, early summer. So we're past that point now, so now we've got to wait for the midterms. But the negotiations carry on, regardless of the political uh, situation. But, you know, that's, that, that, that's what would have uh, explained those rushes that, that you mentioned. You know, let's rush to get this done. Okay, well, we missed that one. Let's rush to get the next deadline. Okay, well, we missed that one. So now we've got a little bit of time where, uh, you know, we're not going to have a new Congress installed until, I guess, January 2019, uh, you know, hmm. and, and they and they hopefully soon, you know, early in that in that Congress, we'll be able to take up a newly negotiated document and, uh, and, and get on with it. Is anybody exhausted yet? Yeah, you know, I, I talk to people here in Ottawa that are involved with the discussions, and, and it's, an, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, but, you know, these are people that are used to this process. Um, you know, this, this I, I would say that this round or this version of it is, is a little bit more challenging or has been a little bit more challenging uh, just because of the, you know, the, the differences of opinion that exist uh, between the parties. Uh, but, you know, there's optimism, and I think that... Uh, Ultimately, an agreement will be reached. Michael Hatch has been with us, Chief Economist, Canadian Automobile Dealers Association. Michael, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Anytime. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.